Prostate cancer is the most commonly diagnosed cancer among men, but research shows that a significant disparity exists in the U.S. and specifically in Milwaukee. African-American men have two to three times the risk for prostate cancer, and Milwaukee has been shown to have significantly higher prostate cancer mortality rates black versus white men. On today's show, learn about a research study hoping to provide better outcomes in our community. We'll also discover a clinical trial that's enrolling patients being treated for inflammatory bowel diseases. There are two subgroups of this study. The first looks into medical treatment. The other subgroup looks into patients that will undergo surgery for inflammatory bowel disease. And later, we'll focus our CTSI on the Medical College of Wisconsin's 125th anniversary being marked in 2018. The contributions the Medical College of Wisconsin has made have an impact not only here in Milwaukee or in Wisconsin or even in the United States. We have contributed to the body of knowledge that has improved health worldwide. That's all coming up inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Research shows that prostate cancer is the most common cancer among American men, with a disproportionately higher rate among African American men. With September designated as National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, it's a great time to discover a research study that'll soon be underway, focusing on the significant disparity in African-American male prostate cancer. Dr. Melinda Stolle is Associate Director for Cancer Prevention and Control and Professor, Department of Medicine, at Freighter and the Medical College of Wisconsin. We caught up with Dr. Stolle recently to learn more about the multi-institutional, multidisciplinary research study she's leading. She begins by sharing the incidence rate of prostate cancer among all men in the U.S. So prostate is the most common cancer that's diagnosed in men in the U.S. Thinking about specific numbers, about 165,000 men or one in nine will be diagnosed in the U.S. in 2018. But while it's a rather common cancer, Dr. Stolle is quick to point out most prostate cancers are treatable. So the mortality rate is relatively low. The majority, 98.2% will survive at least five years. Which, of course, is encouraging news in cancer treatment. Because they're so commonly diagnosed and they've gotten a lot of money in research, there have been many advances that have increased cure rates and overall survival rates. However, while overall survival rates for prostate cancer are ever improving, there still exists a dramatic disparity between African-American males and white males. African-American men have two to three times the risk for prostate cancer as white men. 
and mortality rate is 47.2 versus about 20, black versus white men. The reasons for these disparities are still being explored. There's no real simple answer, and it's not just one reason. There are multiple complex and interrelated reasons. So that's some of the work that's going on now to understand. And the disparities extend well beyond the incidence and mortality rates. Prior to getting diagnosed, there are disparities in screening. So that's a concern. And once men are diagnosed, there are access to treatment issues, clearance to survivorship, which is where my research interests lie. We'll learn more about the prostate cancer survivorship study she and her fellow researchers will be conducting shortly. But ahead of that, Dr. Stolle tells us that while prostate cancer is survivable, for many it's the combination of the cancer with other conditions that can be deadly. You see that after cancer diagnosis, people gain weight and that increase in body fat then increases risk for things like cancer recurrence and also heart disease, diabetes, other comorbidities that end up being the number one killer. And there are factors making the comorbidity rate among African-American men higher as well. Things like stress, access, and poverty. You know, how do you eat healthy if you're living in a place where there are no healthy foods or you can't go out and exercise? So black men are challenged by multiple other health conditions besides cancer. In fact, while the national mortality rate for prostate cancer among African-American males is high, it's among the highest in Milwaukee. Milwaukee has been shown to have significantly higher prostate cancer mortality rates among African Americans, ranking sixth among large U.S. cities. Even for those that undergo successful prostate cancer treatment, many face greater quality of life challenges following their treatment. When someone gets diagnosed with cancer, their world turns upside down and they get their treatment plan, but then treatment ends and some anxiety comes back. And unfortunately, in metropolitan America, minorities face greater poverty, greater access issues. So if you're dealing with those after you've been diagnosed, there's been research to show, in fact, black men have greater struggles with quality of life. Dr. Stolle became aware of these disparities earlier in her career as a clinical psychologist, as she focused on cancer survivorship and resources available to survivors. When I was practicing clinically, and I was in Chicago at the time. My white cancer survivors had all these resources, psychosocial, gyms, yet when I was trying to find resources for African-American cancer survivors, I couldn't find them. So she took action. I put together a focus group of breast cancer survivors and said, what can we do? And the biggest concern of theirs was lifestyle, managing other health conditions, and preventing cancer. And that focus group led to the creation of resources. I started this program called Moving Forward, which was a weight loss program for African-American breast cancer survivors. And then it became a research study to understand the impact of lifestyle change for cancer survivors. In coming to the medical College of Wisconsin, Dr. Stolle quickly recognized the high rate of prostate cancer among African-American men and the lack of resources locally. So again, she took action, first with focus groups. When we conducted focus groups, we heard some similar things. We're interested in coming together as a group. We feel isolated. Yes, we're interested in lifestyle, but we also want to be able to talk to each other about our cancer. And now, leveraging the success of the Moving Forward program, she and her research team will be launching a program called Men Moving Forward, a lifestyle program for African-American prostate cancer survivors, counseling around healthy eating, 
breathing and exercise, but also an opportunity for social support. The Men Moving Forward program focuses on body composition of African-American male prostate cancer survivors based on improving their dietary habits. Adopt a healthy lifestyle that includes plant-based eating, fruits and vegetables, whole grains, reduced red meat, trying to focus more on where you can get whole foods and working with local farmers markets and also community gardens. And increasing their daily physical activity. There are three components to a full exercise program, cardiovascular fitness, then there is strength, and then flexibility. Three components in helping men put together a program that will work wherever they are. A routine that somebody can replicate at home by themselves. What's the specific aim of men moving forward? If we help men adopt a healthy lifestyle, do these lifestyle programs change your body composition? And if they do, then what is the cascade of responses from that? So the aim of the study is not only to implement a program and see if you can get men to show up, but then if you can get them to show up and change their eating and exercise, what's happening inside their bodies and how might that inform future programming? As Dr. Stolly mentions, Men Moving Forward focuses on body composition of the study's participants. But what exactly does that mean? Dr. Paula Papanek is Director of the Program of Exercise Science in the Department of Physical Therapy at Marquette University and a key member of Dr. Stolle's research team. In the simplest model, you have two parts to your body. You have fat and you have non-fat. What we've gone on to do now through science is to take that non-fat part and divide that into smaller parts, basically your muscle, fluid, and bone. All those don't have fat in them. They're all part of your lean tissue. And we also know that they can change. So you can exercise and get more lean. You can exercise and improve your bone. And you can change your fluid by diet and exercise as well. And so Men Moving Forward aims to better control the balance between non-fat and fat in African-American men with prostate cancer through diet and exercise. In looking at body composition, is fat necessarily bad? That's a great question because fat is important. It's our way that we store fuel. Fat is insulating. It keeps us warm. Fat also protects our organs, but it's excess fat, and in particular, belly fat. That fat seems to be the most metabolically active, and it seems to have an inflammatory role, and that's what everyone's really excited about, the ability to target that belly fat and decrease your inflammation, which might ultimately be linked to promoters of cancer. But while fat isn't inherently bad, the belly fat Dr. Papanek refers to can be. Increased visceral adipose tissue or belly fat is associated with an increased risk for almost every disease we know. Diabetes, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and cancer. All forms of cancer. For women, breast cancer, and for men, prostate cancer. Next, Dr. Papanek points out the significance of the Men Moving Forward program's focus on body composition versus simple weight loss. If you just go on a diet, you could lose weight, but you could also lose some lean tissue and you could lose some belly fat. And ideally, what you want to do is build the lean and lose only fat. How do you differentiate that? You have to look at the composition. And so this study is to get people to exercise 
so that they maintain or build muscle and that what they're targeting is the loss of fat. The program will follow the American Cancer Society guidelines for nutrition and physical activity for cancer survivors. The American Cancer Society recommends exercise for all patients with cancer. It's effective, it increases your quality of life, and increases survival. But for African-American men in parts of the city, exercise is simple, but it's not easy. Targeting it requires someone who knows and understands exercise. So the study will help individualize the exercise program so that you get the best results possible. And she says these guidelines are proven effective in positively impacting outcomes. The data for the benefits of physical activity and cancer are compelling. That's the reason why the study has been funded. Other studies have shown how powerful physical activity and exercise can be. And so the purpose of men moving forward is to change your life in a way that's meaningful and positive. Back to our conversation with Dr. Stolly, she describes what participation in men moving forward will look like. They complete an interview, a blood drop, and then you also complete the DEXA scan and it measures how much fat you have to muscle. Then men will be put into one of two groups, a guided program or a self-guided program. Well, they'll get the exact same materials, but they get to do it at their home. And that will be a four-month program. And then they do the interview, the blood draw, and the scan again. And then at 12 months, because we want to see, do things change over time? And with funding intact, the Men Moving Forward program is ready to move forward soon. We just started funding in July, so we plan to begin enrolling in January. And the program would begin in March, April, depending on enrollment. Speaking of enrollment, how many African-American male prostate cancer survivors are they hoping to enroll? The study hopes to enroll 200 men. I'll tell you, with my breast cancer study, we enrolled 246. So I fully expect Milwaukee to come out and show up Chicago and we'll meet that 200 if not go over. To find out more about enrollment in Men Moving Forward, Lauren Matthews is our study coordinator. Her phone number is 414-955-8819 or you can also reach me at 414-955-7533. This is a multi-institutional research study. And Dr. Stolly is excited about this team science effort. Here at the medical college, Dr. Flynn, who's an expert in patient-reported outcomes, quality of life, Drs. Bilo and Kalari, who are medical oncologists, Dr. Patricia Sheehan is at Loyola and an expert in body composition. Dr. Peter Gant at the University of Illinois Chicago, leading the effort around biomarkers related to prostate cancer recurrence. With September being National Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, Dr. Stolly encourages men to get screened especially African-American men. African-American men, beginning at the age of 45, should be having a conversation with their healthcare provider about screening. If they don't have a provider, the medical college offers free prostate screening once a month. Screening is super important. If you catch prostate cancer early, it can be cured. And there's an upcoming event she wants you to know about. On September 29th, we are having our second annual Prostate Health Education Network event at Pilgrim Rest Church. We'll be sure to post information and links on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. 
Up next, we focus our CTSI on clinical trials. Here's Kayla Pierce. Inflammatory bowel diseases affect over one and a half million people in the United States. All across our country, healthcare and biomedical professionals are advancing research aimed at finding new treatments and, perhaps one day, a cure. In fact, right here in our community, there's currently clinical research examining the association between body composition and patient response to therapies for inflammatory bowel diseases. To learn more, we spoke recently with Dr. Andres Yar from the Inflammatory Bowel Disease Program at Freydert Hospital and Assistant Professor at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Yar tells us that this research study specifically focuses on two sub-study groups. The first sub-study looks into how body composition affects the response to medical treatment in patients with Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis. The other study looks into patients that will undergo surgery for inflammatory bowel disease and how body composition affects the development of a post-surgical complication. Before we look closer at his study, Dr. Yar explains what inflammatory bowel diseases, or IBDs, are. Inflammatory bowel disease in general is a spectrum of conditions of the GI tract we mainly recognize them as Crohn's disease and ulcerative colitis, even though it's really a spectrum. What's known about the causes of IBDs? The reason why people develop inflammatory bowel diseases is not 100% known. However, we do know that it's a normal reaction of our immune system towards bacteria that we have in our bowel. Are these genetic diseases? Unfortunately, they are chronic conditions, and we know that there's a complex genetic background because there's not a single gene that can induce inflammatory bowel diseases, but there's a heavy genetic component. And are IBDs autoimmune diseases? I wouldn't say they're autoimmune diseases. I would say they're immune-mediated diseases because the immune system attacks bacteria in our bowel, but not the actual body. So there's a little bit of a difference. It's not exactly autoimmune diseases. You can learn more about IBDs by checking out episode 31 of our show. You'll find the podcast on our CTSI website. Now, as Dr. Yar mentioned, participants are either taking a biologic drug for treatment or had an IBD-related surgery. For the medical treatment group, what are biologic drugs? Biologic therapy are a group of relatively newer drugs that target very specific proteins in the body. Biologic therapies are used not only in inflammatory bowel diseases, but in many other conditions, including cancer therapy. The great thing about biologic therapy is they target a specific pathway of inflammation in this case without affecting other areas of the body, which in theory makes them more safe and usually more efficacious. For the surgical group, what procedures are typical among them? The type of surgery varies depending on the type of inflammatory bowel disease. For ulcerative colitis, the most common surgery is what we call a colectomy, which means removing the colon, mostly because of two reasons. One, it could be someone that it's developing pre-cancer, so the colon is removed. And the other is when medications are not working, it's kind of a last resort to treat it. For Crohn's disease, it's a bit different because as opposed to ulcerative colitis, Crohn's can affect any area of the GI tract. Ulcerative colitis only affects the colon. So in Crohn's, the surgeon can remove just that area that is affected without removing, for example, the entire colon or the entire intestine. Now that we know who is participating, let's look at the reason for the studies. The reason we did these two studies is inflammatory bowel diseases affect the GI tract and that can affect the absorption of nutrients and the metabolism of the body. So we want to know how someone that does well on treatment 
how that body composition changes. So then, what is the primary aim for each of these studies? There's a theory that specifically fat around the intestine may decrease the response to drugs. And there has been suggestion that in general, obesity may negatively affect the response to treatment, but we really don't know. So even though we have several medications for the treatment of Crohn's and colitis, we still don't know which medication would be better for a specific patient. So these are all factors that can help us choose the best drugs. Now, in the surgical group, the idea was to assess if obesity increases the chance of developing a complication. And that's important because sometimes surgery is not the only way to go. So if we identify those risk factors that put a specific person at higher risk of a complication after surgery, we may say, you know what, maybe we should try medications first and see if we can avoid the surgery at all costs because your chance of developing a complication is very high. And he says there are other aims of the studies. The main issue was to try and see if the baseline beta composition would predict response to treatment, but also how the therapy of Crohn's or colitis changes the body composition. So those are also things that we're looking in the study. What does participation look like? Dr. Yar says it's really quite easy. For the medical group, we're enrolling patients that will start a new therapy, doesn't matter which one, they get a baseline scanner, which takes seconds, and then we follow prospectively and see how they respond to treatment and also how the inflammation in the bowel improved. They come for a follow-up at week 14, and then after six months, we do a second scan in order to see how the body composition changed. And for the post-surgical study participants, it's even easier. We just need a baseline body composition, so it only involves one visit before the surgery where they get blood work and that baseline body scan, and then we just see if they develop any complications. They don't have to come back for a second visit. Is there benefit in participating in these studies for patients who already have an IBD? I think that in general, it would be for the future, especially as the study is still recruiting and we don't have final results. So at the time of the study, they're not going to benefit directly, but in the future, they may still benefit of this knowledge that we may have. Since these studies are still open for enrollment, Dr. Yar encourages patients already diagnosed with IBDs to consider participating to help advance treatments. We ask patients to participate because it involves a small amount of time. Any cooperation is highly appreciated. These type of studies are very important, and that's how we advance medical treatments. We'll post information on where you can learn more on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. In 2018, the Medical College of Wisconsin marks its 125th year. So today, we want to share some of the many highlights as we recognize its quasquicentennial, or 125th, anniversary. And there's no one better to help us do that than Dick Katschke, MCW's Chief Historian and Senior Associate Vice President for Communications. To begin, Dick gives us the timeline of the Medical College of Wisconsin's 125-year evolution in one minute and 25 seconds. The Medical College of Wisconsin traces its roots to its founding on May 20th of 1893 as the Wisconsin College of Physicians and Surgeons. That was the first medical school in Milwaukee. The owners of the school were the faculty members that were teaching. The following year in 1894, the Milwaukee Medical College was founded, and it too was owned by the doctors that were teaching at the medical school. In 1907, the Milwaukee Medical College became the medical department of Marquette University. 
1909, the Wisconsin College of Physicians and Surgeons forged a similar relationship with Carroll College. Marquette University wound up merging the two schools and taking over in 1913, and it created the Marquette University School of Medicine from 1913 until 1967. Then Marquette University realized that it couldn't afford to continue support for the medical school. At the same time, there were plans afoot to look at the creation of an academic medical center in Milwaukee. And in 1970, the board of directors of the medical school changed the name to Medical College of Wisconsin and changed its service from just the Milwaukee area to the entire state of Wisconsin. Plans moved ahead to create a medical center, and in 1978, the Medical College of Wisconsin moved from the Marquette campus to what is today the Milwaukee Regional Medical Center. Right on time. Over the past 125 years, many milestones and innovations rooted in MCW have significantly impacted academic medicine and medical research. Dick also took a minute and 25 seconds to share some of the most notable ones. In 1932, Dr. Armand Quick developed a quick test that measures blood coagulation. In 1939, Dr. Edgar End was trying to treat a condition called the bends. In the process, he came up with the first scuba diving equipment. In 1964, Dr. Richard Stewart developed the first hollow fiber kidney dialysis machine. In 1972, Dr. Frederick Blodgett was the first to develop a blood test that could measure lead poisoning. In 1983, Dr. Joan Gill was the first to identify hemophiliacs were developing HIV and AIDS and identified that it came from donated blood. Her discovery saved thousands and thousands of lives worldwide. In 1992, scientists here pioneered the field of functional magnetic resonance imaging. We were the ones who discovered the genes for colorblindness in 1995. In 2003, we developed the standards for side impact airbags in your automobile. In 2006, we were the first in the world to develop a treatment protocol to successfully treat full-blown rabies. In 2010, we were the first in the world to use whole genome sequencing to diagnose and successfully treat a child who was dying from some rare unknown disease. And then in 2016, we were the first in the world to successfully regenerate a human esophagus for a man that had cancer of the esophagus. That's awesome. As chief historian, Dick's job is to preserve and share MCW's rich history, and he's busy doing just that. Well, one of the things that I'm working on right now is a new history book on the Medical College of Wisconsin, a really comprehensive history, and that will be coming out later this year. There's a rich history that has developed here. It's important that we capture this so that in years to come, people understand how the Medical College of Wisconsin has influenced health and the contributions that we've made. And at the direction of the Medical College's president and CEO, Dr. John Raymond, Dick and others have been busy capturing the history of the medical college in another key way. We need to capture the voices of those people who have made the history, the stories that they have to tell before they're gone. So we've conducted over 250 oral history interviews of MCW's leaders, faculty, staff, students, and alumni, how they came to be at the Medical College of Wisconsin, who they worked with, what are their memories, and these will be available now for anyone that's ever conducting research on any aspect of medicine or the medical college. Next, Dick highlights a couple of studies conducted over the years that established just how essential the medical college is. Heil report. 
in 1967. Their task was to identify, was there a need for an academic medical center in the city of Milwaukee? They came to the conclusion that, yes, indeed, an academic medical center built and based around a medical school at its hub would really improve the quality of health and life in Milwaukee. And then in 2018, the Wisconsin Policy Forum decided to revisit the Heil Commission report from 1967, 50 years later, were the requirements identified in the Heil report met by the Medical College of Wisconsin. The answer was a resounding yes. And he emphasizes that the addition of two regional campuses impact the essentiality of MCW throughout Wisconsin. The Medical College of Wisconsin really changed its character in the last 10 years with the development of new campuses in Green Bay and in Wausau. What it's done is it has changed perception from being an institution limited to southeastern Wisconsin to really being viewed as a statewide resource. It's also given us an opportunity to recruit a new type of student that we have in these regions, and so it's really helped improve the quality of education that we have on those campuses as well as the campus we have in Milwaukee. So what does he see as MCW's lasting mark in its first 125 years? It's the fact that we contribute more doctors who practice in the state of Wisconsin than any other institution. In every county, you will find Medical College of Wisconsin alone helping to serve those communities and provide the best care to their patients. And as far as the next 125 years, Dick says the best way to know where you're going is to understand where you've been. We're standing on the shoulders of giants. Everything we do here is built on the success of people that did pioneering work back in the 20s, the 30s, the 40s, 50s. We're building on their success. And as we look to the future, we've reached the end. For this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio, our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Melinda Stolly, Dr. Paula Papanek, Dr. Andres Yarer, and Dick Katchke. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, along with Kayla Pierce, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir. Thank you.